Hi, my name is Russell Lee, and this is my writer's brain. On this week's episode, we journey into the Star Wars universe as I pitch a version of episode one that could have been. You know the problem with prequels? They're completely unnecessary. They're born from a kernel of a backstory needed to tell a larger story. A young Bruce Wayne witnesses his parents' death. He grows up to fight crime as Batman. A Norwegian scientific team discovers an alien spaceship. The thing is unleashed on an American team leading to paranoia and death. Doc Brown spends his family fortune to build his time machine. Marty ends up stuck in the past and must work with the younger Doc to get home. Are you starting to see a pattern? We don't need to see a movie where Doc Brown spends 30 years working on his time machine. We don't need to see him enlist the Libyans to get the plutonium. We just need to know that it happened. You know the problem with prequels? They're completely unnecessary. They're born from a kernel of a backstory needed to tell a larger story. A young Bruce Wayne witnesses his parents' death. He grows up to fight crime as Batman. A Norwegian scientific team discovers an alien spaceship. The Thing is unleashed on an American team leading to paranoia and death. Doc Brown spends his family fortune to build his time machine. Marty ends up stuck in the past and must work with the younger Doc to get home. Are you starting to see a pattern? We don't need to see a movie where Doc Brown spends 30 years working on his time machine. We don't need to see him enlist Libyans to get the plutonium. We just need to know that it happened, so Marty can escape them in the DeLorean and have his adventures getting back to the future. Backstory. A plot point needed for another tale. And rarely is there enough presence to sustain a story on its own. And worse yet, unless they decide that what we thought we knew about the backstory was all wrong, we know that sooner or later, Mr. and Mrs. Wayne are going down that alleyway. And yet, for the last 20 years, we've been getting prequel after prequel. Norman Bates is a child, the story of the Enterprise before the Enterprise, the adventures of Superman's grandfather on Krypton. Unnecessary prequel after prequel. Add anything to the original story, or are they just a cash grab? Does seeing the Wizards' first days in Oz add anything to the Wizard of Oz? Classic Beast movies add anything to the Harry Potter series? Do we really need to know how character A met character B? The same could be said about sequels. Wasn't the end of the Matrix perfect enough? Do we really need to see what Neo did next? Or were we fine in knowing that by hook or crook, he was going to free us all? Of course, the film industry is just that, an industry. Its job is to release product after product, and hopefully return a profit in doing so. And if they trip and fall into a little art along the way, all the better. If a film makes a profit, then cool, let's make another one. Size matters when talking about the film company's profits. Around far longer than Hollywood has been churning them out. In the early 70s, we had Planet of the Apes prequels, and before that, Godzilla prequels. 
was the young Indiana Jones Chronicles when I was a kid, and if we turn our attention to literature, you can find prequels dating back to the 13th century. My first exposure to a prequel came in the mid-90s with The First King of Shannara. A prequel to Terry Brooks' decades-old Shannara series First King was set 500 years before the original Shannara book. And while I enjoyed it, I can't remember really adding anything to the overall story. As a writer, I'm not innocent of delving into the prequel black hole. My first feature script, The Slasher Reunion, had for a time a clear multi-movie storyline that would have seen the first film bookend by two prequels and two sequels. I felt certain, years after I wrote the first draft, that I needed to tell everyone where the film's killer came from and why he picked up the blade in the first place. Thirty-odd drafts later, I still haven't completely let go of my reuniverse, but I doubt I'll ever write them. As unnecessary as they are, it doesn't look like prequels are going away anytime soon. If more money can be made from continuing beyond the original story, forwards, backwards, or sideways, Hollywood would be mad to ignore the opportunity. Let's face it, it's only a matter of time before some Hollywood executive wonders how James Bond first became a spy and a movie is greenlit. And all that brings us to Star Wars. In a way, it was always inevitable. The moment George Lucas rechristened the original Star Wars film Episode Four, that we would see the prequel trilogy. And we always knew what the story was going to be about. But did we ever expect to get a movie like Rogue One? Again, going back to my original hypothesis, Rogue One was built off a kernel of a backstory. The Rebels have stolen the Death Star plans. The end. Do we really need to see that happen? Now, before you cry foul, I really enjoyed Rogue One. It had a lot of fun characters and badass moments. But I spent a lot of the movie wondering when I was going to see Bothans die, not realising I was thinking of the wrong movie. But while we could argue that Rogue One was a film we never really needed to see, where does that leave us with episodes 1, 2 and 3? We know, going into it, that sooner or later Anakin Skywalker was going to hit the iceberg. But do we really need to see if Sepsi took to get there? The answer can be a yes or no depending on your point of view. But for the sake of things, I'm going to say yes. After all... George Lucas promised us a prequel trilogy the moment he added Episode 4 and New Hope to the Star Wars prints. Now, before we go any further, let me point out that I'm a Star Wars fan. Have been since I was a kid. And while I won't be cosplaying anytime soon, I will throw down my Republic credits to see the next Star Wars film. But that said, while I did enjoy the prequels, I still have some major issues with them. But I think with a few tweaks, we can build a better prequel trilogy. Going into this, I'm going to set myself some ground rules. I have to work with what I have. No sudden appearances of a young Snoke. Don't worry, I'll get to him. I have a bunch of characters to work with, and while I have the freedom to age them up or down, shift them about the place, I still need to do something with them. I also need to keep in mind what George Lucas laid out in the original trilogy. And while the flannel lord has the freedom to ignore or flatter contradict himself, I can't suddenly decide the Emperor was born on a modern day Earth. First things first, we're going to age Anakin up. He's no longer a child but a teenager. Now he's way too old for the training. We're also going to lose the slave stuff, drop his mother from the story entirely, and stay the hell away from Tatooine. We're also going to address the one big problem I had with the prequels, and that's George Lucas's massive misunderstanding of what hiding is. By this, I'm talking about the fact that Obi-Wan Kenobi hides the son of Anakin Skywalker with his only living family on the planet he grew up with, and instead of having Uncle Owen raise him as a son, he gives him his father's surname and then spends the next two decades watching over him 
in his Jedi bathrobes. And while we're talking about Uncle Owen, we're going to give him and Anakin more of a relationship than the two or three scenes they shared in Episode 2. So let's begin. Star Wars Episode 1, The New Order. The title crawl addresses the state of the universe. The Republic, which has stood for millennia, is on the verge of collapse. Systems are seeding from the Republic with each passing day. A separatist movement, led by former Jedi Count Dooku, is splitting the Republic in two. War between the two sides is inevitable. In an effort to bring the two sides together, a treaty between Republic loyalists from the planet Alderaan and a key separatist world of Naboo is to be signed with the arranged marriage of Prince Bail Organa and Princess Amidala. It is hoped that the joining of these two houses will heal the rift between the two sides and bring peace to the galaxy. We begin in orbit of Naboo. An escort of ships from Alderaan has arrived to escort Amidala to a neutral world where her wedding will take place. On the flagship is Obi-Wan Kenobi, a young Jedi that has been stationed on Alderaan for the last year as Jedi advisor to the royal family. The role of a Jedi advisor is a cross between ambassador and archbishop, and almost all planets have one. This is one of the main conflicts in the division between the Loyalist and the Separatist, the influence of the Jedi on the Republic. As Amidala's ship rises from the surface to join her escort, a Separatist fleet drops out of hyperspace and begins to attack. The Alderaan and Naboo ships duke it out with the Separatist, while the Princess's ship tries to break through the blockade. On board Amidala's ship is C-3PO. He's a protocol droid after all, and what better place for a protocol droid than at the side of a young princess in a political situation? But there's no sign of R2-D2. To hide in the stakes, Obi-Wan Kenobi jumps in a fighter and battles his way to Amidala's ship. He's a good fighter pilot, but reaching Amidala through hundreds of Separatist fighters is next to impossible. In the midst of the battle, the Alderaan flagship is destroyed. Without the heavy cruiser to protect Amidala's ship, the wise choice would be for them to turn around and return to the planet. But the battle's too chaotic for this to happen, so Obi-Wan orders them to jump to hyperspace. But there's two problems. One, Obi-Wan's ship has no hyperdrive, so they'll have to leave him behind. And two... Amidala's ship has been damaged. There's no way of controlling the jump. They could end up anywhere in the galaxy. Amidala doesn't want to leave the Jedi behind, but Obi-Wan quickly overrules her, and they jump to hyperspace. Obi-Wan's ship is in worse shape than he let on. His weapons are gone, and his life support is soon to follow it. He closes his eyes, and readies himself to become one with the Force. On the bridge of the Destroyer, two dark cloaked figures stand at a window, sensing Obi-Wan's impending death. They are Maul and Grievous, Dark Lords of the Sith and ranking general in the Separatist army. Grievous orders Obi-Wan's ship brought on board, but when the tractor beam reaches out to capture him, the Jedi hits the eject button and explodes out of the cockpit, just as an enemy fighter flies past. Obi-Wan grabs onto the underside of the fighter and zooms away to safety. On a view screen, we see Obi-Wan rip open the canopy and exchange places with the pilot before redirecting the ship back to Naboo. Maul is impressed. Very good, Jedi. But Grievous is pissed. In my episode 1... Maul has more personality. He finds the whole situation with Obi-Wan and the Naboo to be very funny, and while Grievous orders his troops to proceed to Phase 2, Maul leaves his ship on another mission. Separatist fighters come after the Jedi, only to be destroyed in a quick dogfight, but Obi-Wan's stolen fighter is damaged, and he crashes on Naboo. As he passes out, a group of shadows converge on the fighter. It should be noted here that Grievous is not the half-alien, half-cyborg we met in Attack of the Clones, but fully alien. Meanwhile, Amidala's ship hurls through hyperspace. There's chaos on board. Entering hyperspace is easy enough. It's the whole leaving hyperspace that's the tricky part. Because of the damage to the hyperdrive, there's no telling where or how many pieces they're going to end up in. The Naboo in my Star Wars trilogy are an arrogant and wealthy species. 
and it's that arrogance that's going to be their undoing. They're also short-sighted. The ship's captain comes up with a plan to save Amidala by injecting her and her handmaidens, more ninjas than ladies-in-waiting here, in an escape pod. But the ship only has one escape pod, just enough space for Amidala and her crew, including 3PO. Everyone else is going to die. Amidala coldly accepts her sacrifice. It is the will of the Force. But one of her handmaidens, Padme, isn't as accepting. Amidala's ship drops back into the normal space, and the pod is ejected a split second before the ship is ripped into a billion pieces. Those in the pod are barely better off. Two of the six handmaidens die in the ejection, and Amidala is injured. An automated computer message tells us they only have six hours of life support left. They've dropped out in hyperspace in the vast emptiness between the systems, and the comms aren't strong enough to reach the nearest habitable system. Far away from this, on the Republic capital Coruscant, Chancellor Valorum is informed of the attack, and that the young Prince Bail Organa wants to personally lead a fleet of ships to the planet in the hopes of finding Amidala. He's frozen by indecision. If he allows this to happen, all the work he has done to prevent a war will be for nothing. But if he refuses the Prince's request, Alderaan may cede from the Republic. Adding to his problems is his chief rival, Sheev Palpatine. Palpatine is calling for a retaliatory strike on the Separatists, and is using the attack on Naboo to further add to his claims that the Chancellor is weak and that he should leave the Senate. As I mentioned earlier, the influence of the Jedi is a big problem in my version of the prequels, and it's here we get our first real taste of that problem. The Jedi are a religious order after all, as are the Sith, and in the background of the conflict between the Republic and the Separatists is an ideological split between the Jedi and Sith. Things aren't as black and white in my prequels. The Jedi aren't all good, and the Sith aren't all bad. There's plenty of grey areas on both sides. What it basically comes down to is an ideological shift. Both sides are religions of the Force. The Sith believe in strength and passion, the Jedi in harmony and grace. Neither side is right or wrong, good or evil, they just believe in different sides of the same coin. It's like Anakin sending revenge to the Sith. The Jedi are evil from my point of view, but done a little more subtly. Adding to this is Palpatine. He's as close to an atheist as we're going to see in the Star Wars universe. He believes that every person should be in control of their own destiny, and that no Jedi or Sith should have a say in their day-to-day lives. And after a millennia of religious influence... This point of view is started to catch on. Alone in his office, Valora makes contact with the Jedi. The Jedi, for all their influence, live in isolation on their home world, Jeddah. Valorum asks for the guidance of the Jedi, and it's Yoda that appears before him to guide him. He quickly brings Valorum around to the idea that he should allow the Jedi to take charge of the situation. This is a key scene depicting the conflict because it shows that while the decision made is the most prudent and logical, there's also a certain amount of manipulation going on. As the conference ends, we find ourselves alone with the Jedi, and we're not entirely certain if the solution was something Valorum came to on his own or something Yoda put in his mind. The question is further complicated by Yoda's statement that the Chancellor has seen their wisdom. Remember, I'm playing from George Lucas's playbook here, and while a little these are not the droids you're looking for with Stormtroopers or fun and games, mind control is a pretty dark power that can easily be abused, and any order, be it political or religious, wants to stay in power once there. Yoda orders two of his most trusted knights, Mace Windu and Gwygon Jin, into the field. Windu is to travel to Naboo, make contact with the Jedi advisor there, and discover the fate of the Princess and Obi-Wan Kenobi, while Gwygon will head into Separatist-controlled space in the hopes of making contact with his old master, Dooku. By this point in the movie, we're starting to get a bigger picture of the state of the galaxy's military. There is no single army of the Republic, but thousands of separate armies, each loyal to their own homeworld. In a way, a galactic civil war is inevitable. And while the Republic brings everyone together under a single body, planets and peoples are still very isolated and separated from each other. 
Meanwhile, back on Nabu, Grievous's forces begin to take control of the planet, while at the same time, Obi-Wan wakes up in a cave. He's under the care of a Gungan healer, having been rescued by a brash hashling named Jar Jar Binks. In this version of Episode 1, the Gungans aren't played for gags. They're a downtrodden species, a genetically created slave race broken by the Nabu masters. And it's on the backs of the Gungans that the Nabu have built their fortunes. In short, the Gungans are Nabu's dirty little secret. And now learning about them for the first time, Obi-Wan questions if he's on the wrong side. But despite his reservations, Obi-Wan has a duty to attend to. He has to find and protect Princess Amidala. But to do this, he needs help. And without being asked, Jar Jar volunteers his services. In the escape pod, life support is on its last legs. Amidala and handmaidens have passed out, and 3PO is all that stands between them and the ship closing on them. We have a big build-up of tension. As the pod is captured, and the unknown crew cuts through the hole. 3PO stands his ground, and while the idea of 3PO playing the weaponless defender sounds funny, it's played for all the serious we can muster. We're seeing just how loyal the droid is to his princess. We have a moment of tension before we discover who was cutting to the hole. It's R2-D2, who quickly zaps 3PO offline. Padme comes awake in the infirmary, now on board the ship that rescued her. It's a freighter of some kind, all metal and grime, not the usual class the Nabu expect. Amidala and the remaining maidens are in the infirmary with her still unconscious. A teenage boy watches her from the shadows. She doesn't know he's there until he speaks. I did my best to help them, but I'm afraid their injuries are beyond me. Before she can discover who he is or where she is, the ship's captain and first officer storm in. He's pissed, tells us straight out that his ship, the Twilight, isn't a rescue ship, that her and her kind have caused him all kinds of trouble, and that he expects to be paid for said trouble. The first officer, a couple years older than the boy, plays mediator. Something he does a lot, especially when the captain's drunk, like he is now. And Padme tells them the story about how the ship was destroyed in the plasma storm. Both of the boys can tell she's lying, but the captain buys it. She asks for the captain's help in getting medical attention for her people, but he refuses. It's dangerous to send transmissions from where they are, and there's pirates about these parts. They'll have to wait until they reach the destination in a few days. But Amidala won't last a few days. The two lads play off the captain's greed, promising that by helping these people, there would be a great reward. Enough for another ship or two. The boy offers to go to a nearby outpost for medical help. The captain reluctantly agrees, telling the boy their fate is now in his hands. During this exchange, Amidala wakes up and Padme attends to her. The princess knows she's dying and tells Padme that the handmaidens and her must prepare for the ritual. But Padme is hopeful that the force will guide them to safety. As they continue to talk, the boys watch from the far end of the infirmary. The first officer asks the boy, Do you know what you're doing, Anakin? And the boy, Anakin, smiles, full Han Solo brushness. I sure hope not. So we now have almost all the players on the board. Obi-Wan and Jar Jar are together, Mace Windu and Gwygon Jin are on their way to their B and C plots, and Padme and Amidala are in the company of Anakin and his brother Owen. Now about Anakin and Owen. We're following most of the backstory George Lucas laid out in episode 4. Here, Anakin is the navigator of a spice freighter, just as Uncle Owen said he was. This doesn't stop him from fighting in the Clone Wars, it's just his backstory. Owen is the first mate, and his father is the captain. Ironically, like Luke, Owen wants to do something else with his life. He doesn't want to spend the rest of his days on the ship, doing the family business. He wants a simple life. He wants a family. The irony is, years later, he'll try to force Luke to stay on the farm like his father tried to force him to stay in space. But this is more out of fear than anything else. So Anakin and Padme leave the ship to find help. And in their scenes, we learn that Anakin was taken in by the last family as a child. But since he is in blood... He therefore has no surname. On Nabu, Obi-Wan and Jar Jar arrive in the capital. They're surprised to find that the Separatists are stripping the planet of resources. 
an odd move for invaders. Obi-Wan needs to find the Naboo's Jedi advisor, Sifo Dyas, to discover what is really happening here. At the same time, Gwygon has reached separate space and has begun his search for Dooku. There's no one planet the Count calls home, so it's going to take some time to find him. Back on Naboo, Obi-Wan's search for Sifo Dyas has brought him in contact with another Force user, the recently arrived Mace Windu. Windu senses Armadillo's connection to the Force fading and orders Obi-Wan to track it down before it's too late. He will remain on Naboo and take charge of the situation with the help of Jar Jar Binks. Anakin and Padme have made it to the Vegas-like outpost. It's like nothing she's ever seen before, a real Scythian den of sin and pleasures. Here we get a better understanding of the religious mess the galaxy is in. The Nabu, despite their allegiance to the Separatists, are puritanical members of the Jedi Order. Anakin, on the other hand, believes a man should take responsibility for his own actions. He doesn't really believe in the Force, and if he did, no one's going to tell him how to live his life. We find on the outpost a sort of zero-G entertainment called Skywalking. Anakin absolutely loves it, and has dreamt since he was a child of becoming a Skywalker. They're starting to bond. There's a definite attraction there, but it's more like that of Leia and Han in the original trilogy. They're into each other, but they're also annoying the shit out of each other too. And it doesn't help that the clock is ticking. There's no time for love, Dr. Jones. Finding the medicine they need, they run into some trouble. Maul has tracked them down, and intends to take Padme as a hostage to force Amidala's hand. Anakin tries to defend the girl, and much to Maul's surprise, he puts up a good fight. The Force is strong with you, but he easily gets the upper hand and leaves the unconscious Anakin behind as he leaves with Padme. On Naboo, Mace and Jar Jar have tracked down Sifo Dyas. In the prequels, he was responsible for the off-screen creation of the clone troopers. Here, he's a turncoat. Dyas has turned his back on the beliefs of the Jedi, is now in league with the Sith, and was the one to inform the Separatists of Naboo's treachery. This whole situation isn't a clear turning to the dark side moment. More of a choice on the former Jedi's part to side with the winning side. You have no idea what's coming. Nabu will be first to fall to the shadow. A fight breaks out between the two, and Sifo Dyas falls on Mace Windu's saber. When all is said and done, Mace finds himself alone. Jar Jar has fled the scene. On the outpost, Maul runs into some trouble in escaping with Padme. Obi-Wan has tracked them down. Maul is amused by the Jedi's presence and Obi-Wan is surprised by Mauls. It turns out that Maul is a prince in his own right, hailing from the world of Eridonia. He is considered a great warrior and leader, and a hero of both his people and others, and Obi-Wan can't wrap his head around the fact that he is turned to the dark side. Maul tells him, The Jedi have grown blind. The Republic corrupt. A new order must take its place, if the galaxy is to survive. Before Obi-Wan can get more from Maul, he attacks. Obi-Wan is no match for him. He can barely hold his own, and he's on the verge of becoming one with the Force when Anakin reappears. Enraged by Maul's actions, the latent Force abilities he has always had come to the surface. He's strong, much stronger than Maul felt, and he defeats the Sith Lord and saves Padme and Obi-Wan, only for Maul to escape with his life. Elsewhere, Gwygon meets with Dooku. Dooku was once Gwygon's master, and he's heartbroken to see him now a Sith Lord. It's only a point of view, my old Padawan. We must do as we must in service of the Force. They speak on matters of politics, and Dooku shares the same POV that Maul had, that a great time of upheaval is coming, and that a new order must replace the current. We cut back to Nabu as Dooku monologues. General Grievous has come down to the surface to face Mace Windu. Dooku admits that Nabu's decision to fall back in line with the Republic is an unfortunate turn of events. But the events are as the Force wills, and that the Nabu will stand as a monument to what happens when people turn against the future. The war has begun. 
As Padme, Anakin, and Obi-Wan rush back to the Twilight, a fleet of old Iranian ships drop out of hyperspace and begin to attack the Separatists. While at the same time, Grievous and Windu begin to fight, and Yoda arrives on Coruscant to meet with Chancellor Valorum and Palpatine. This is our duel of fates, even bigger and more grand than we got in Phantom Menace, as all our storylines converge. The Battle of Naboo, the fight between Jedi and Sith, the rescue mission to save Amidala, and the meeting of the two political foes. It all serves to begin what will one day be called the Clone Wars. Windu and Grievous battle it out all over the capital, and the Sith falls of the Jedi. But still alive, he's saved by his troops and taken back on board his ship. He'll return in Episode 2, but different than before. Mace escapes just in the nick of time with the help of Jar Jar, who has quickly put together an evacuation of the planet. Naboo is destroyed by a massive internal explosion. They've been punished for turning against the Separatists, and no one will ever forget what happened here. Meanwhile, Padme and Co. return to the Twilight, but it's too late. Amidala's taken a turn for the worse, and she only has moments left. Their journey was for nothing. Padme is informed by her fellow handmaidens that they're ready. Padme soberly acknowledges this, and shares a passionate kiss with Anakin, before turning and leaving him to attend to the princess. At the same time on Coruscant, Yoda has brought Valorum and Palpatine together at the Chancellor's request to make peace between the two, but it's all a ruse. Valorum attacks Palpatine, intending to kill him, only for Yoda to put him down. The two are shocked to learn that Valorum is a clone, and has been for a while. On the Twilight, Anakin is getting antsy. Word has come in of Naboo's destruction, and the Naboo and the ship are refusing to be disturbed. He doesn't like not knowing what the Naboo are up to. He tries to get answers out of 3PO, but the droid is oddly withdrawn. He tells him only that what is happening must happen, and that he's glad that he got to know Padme. We get pieces of the ritual taking place in the infirmary, but it's not until Prince Bail Organa arrives to take custody of the Naboo that we discover what happened. Amidala isn't so much a name as a symbol, and throughout history the memories of Amidala have passed from one to the next. The line of handmaidens exists to take on the role, and with the death of the current Amidala, the memories and role now pass to Padme. And with the ritual of merging, the girl we once knew as Padme is effectively dead and becomes someone new. Padme Amidala. In light of the destruction of Nabu, Prince Bail releases Padme Amidala from a predecessor's agreement, but Padme refuses. The marriage was to be a symbol to the galaxy, a way to bring the sides of the Republic and the Separatists together, and the marriage must still happen. He agrees to continue with the wedding, and she leaves the twilight, ignoring Anakin and his broken heart. As Episode 1, The New Order comes to a conclusion, Padme Amidala and Bail Organa tie the knot. She, Palpatine, rises to the rank of Chancellor, and Anakin leaves the Twilight with Obi-Wan to begin his training as a Jedi. So what did you think? This version of Episode 1 keeps the backstory that George Lucas set up in the original trilogy and doesn't throw it all out for exciting pod racing. Owen and Anakin actually have a relationship here, and not just a single scene or two. And there's more of a mystery to the rise of the Empire than just power. Unlimited power. Maul is still out there, as is Grievous and Dooku. We've yet to hint at the Emperor, and Palpatine is nothing more than a politician now in charge of the Republic. We have a lot of places to go from here, and that's what we'll do in the next episode. For now, I'm Russell Lee, and this has been my writer's brain. <laughs>